basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Before we start this week's episode, I have an exciting announcement to make. I'll be taking part in the Intelligent Speech Conference on the 25th of June. The Intelligent Speech Conference brings together education-oriented podcasters from across the spectrum and around the planet. And why don't I let them tell you a little bit more about it themselves? Ben, we're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much. You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference. Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back. Again, it's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of $20. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! Cue rousing music. <laughs> So if you're looking to expand your uh, listening horizons, you should check out Intelligent Speech on the 25th of June. Terranaut listeners can get a $5 discount on registration using the promo code Terra, T-R-R-A. Okay, let's get back to NASA and to Project Gemini. And it's a good time to do that because we left the program at a very exciting time. Uh, And by the way, I want to note that the timing of this episode is also appropriate because as I sit down to record, it is literally 57 years to the day, in fact, almost to the hour, since the countdown started for Gemini 4. In March of 1965, after more than three years of design, testing, trial, tribulation, redesign, and retesting, Project Gemini had finally gotten NASA astronauts back to orbit after a hiatus of almost two years. And until now, we, eh, and a lot of people at NASA, frankly, had been focusing on just getting to this point. But also, of course, just getting back to orbit had never been the objective of the Gemini program. In fact, there really was no point, as far as NASA was concerned, in simply going back to orbit. No, although we have not talked much about it over the last few episodes, by 1965, NASA's focus was pretty firmly not on low-Earth orbit. Its focus was on the moon. You really can't understand the sense of urgency that animated the Gemini program unless you understand that. NASA had a deadline. By the time of Gemini 3, the first operational Gemini flight, NASA had less than five years to get a man to the moon and get him back safely. The clock was ticking, and everybody knew it. NASA had asked for, and the U.S. Congress and administration uh, had, by now, approved a budget for Gemini that was approaching a billion dollars. That money was being spent for really only one reason. 
to help NASA get to the moon and back. So now that Gemini was flying, now that the booster and the spacecraft had been checked out, now that the new astronauts had been selected and were trained or being trained, now that the new mission control center was operational, it was time to get to work. Work they would. To put it in perspective, consider this fact. Having not flown any manned missions for about 22 months, in the 20 months between Gemini 3 in March 1965 and Gemini 12 in November of 1966, NASA would fly 10 times, averaging almost a flight every two months. This is a cadence of flights that is honestly pretty staggering and which, frankly, I don't think has been achieved since. One does get the sense that once the Gemini program was out of the gate, everyone was eager to make up for lost time. And remember, Gemini had some very specific objectives that it had to meet in terms of getting NASA ready to go to the moon. There were, now, three main objectives for Gemini. The first was to learn how to do rendezvous and docking in space. The second was to learn about long-duration spaceflight. And the third was to learn about working outside the spacecraft, a so-called extravehicular activity, or EVA, as it is known at NASA. Now, by the way, just a quick note here. I generally try, in this podcast, to avoid using too many acronyms. I mean, I used to say that you couldn't work at NASA until you learned to speak in three- and four-letter words, but I wanted to avoid descending into impenetrable jargon as much as I could on the podcast. Um, I hope I'm achieving that. Um, This is going to be an, an exception, however. NASA has been calling the process of leaving the spacecraft, or spacewalking, or whatever you want to call it, an EVA, for so long that I think it's actually become, you know, a thing. Even people who know nothing about space probably know what an EVA is. So in the same way that I use NASA, instead of saying the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, I'm just going to say EVA when I mean extravehicular activity. Now, uh, while I've listed those objectives above in order of priority, um, there was an issue for Gemini 4, uh, actually a few issues. Uh, It was clear when Gemini 4 was being planned in the summer of 1964, so a year earlier, that it was not going to be possible um, to do any real rendezvous and docking testing on Gemini 4. In the first place, the rendezvous uh, target vehicle, the Atlas Agena vehicle uh, being developed by the Air Force, was not going to be ready. In the second place, the rendezvous radar module for the Gemini spacecraft um, was a doubtful starter, And, in fact, time would prove that it was not going to be ready in time. Okay, so rendezvous and docking was off the list for the first operational flight. Uh, At least the flight could be a real test of long-duration spaceflight, though. I mean, remember that until that time, the longest longest of any of the U.S. manned flights had been Gordon Cooper's last Mercury mission, which had lasted eh, a bit more than a day and a half. The Soviets had routinely flown missions of two days or more. Um, Still, the longest that any human being had been off the planet uh, was a little bit less than five days. And of course, the data on how the flights of that duration had affected the physiology of the cosmonauts involved uh, wasn't available to NASA. So, for NASA, anything longer than two days was new territory. Of course, NASA did not just want to extend their own record. They really wanted to enter uncharted territory, and so... Gemini 4 was originally planned for eight days. And I say originally, because one of the keys to achieving that uh, longer duration flights was the fuel cell system. And these, as we have talked about briefly in a previous episode, um, were the chemical cells that combined hydrogen and oxygen 
to produce electricity and water. They were essential for long-duration flight because the only other option for powering the Gemini spacecraft were batteries, and they were heavy and they were bulky, so heavy and so bulky, in fact, that it was only possible to stuff enough batteries for about four days of power into the Gemini equipment module. So flights of any longer than four days were going to require working fuel cells. Unfortunately, as 1964 turned into 1965, it became clear that working fuel cells were not something that could be guaranteed in time for Gemini 4. Progress had been made on getting the fuel cells to work, but there were still some major questions, particularly about how they were going to work in a vacuum and in zero-g. Now, NASA had hoped to test the fuel cells on Gemini 3, and they were installed in the spacecraft. But, for obvious reasons, the rule was that they would be tested on a non-interference basis, which meant that if they worked, that was great, but if they didn't, no extra time was going to be spent figuring out why, and certainly, the overall mission plan was not going to be modified to troubleshoot any problems that the fuel cells might encounter. So, when the fuel cells started acting up during the countdown to launch, the flight control team made the decision to turn them off and worry about them after flight. And that was in late March of 1965, so with Gemini 4 moving to a launch date in early June, as I said, NASA was in a hurry, uh, there really was no way to plan to use the fuel cells operationally, as they hadn't been tested on orbit, and so, in part because of this issue, Gemini 4 was planned for four days. Uh, In truth, the other thing pushing for the slightly shorter duration was the flight surgeon medical community, who had been advocating for a shorter mission um, than the full eight days for a while. Um, Because as the medical community had started to come to grips with the fact that NASA's mission of getting to the moon and back would require humans to live and work in space for as much as two weeks at a time, um, they'd started to realize that there were some major unanswered questions about how human physiology would adapt to being weightless for that length of time, uh, and just as critically, um, how it would need to adapt once the astronauts returned to normal gravity. Um, And so they weren't really interested in pushing the envelope too far too fast. Um, Their concerns centered around three effects. The first of these was really only an issue in space, and it's officially dubbed Space Adaptation Syndrome, or SAS. It's usually known as space sickness, though, because it mimics the effects of seasickness on Earth, um, to which it's related. NASA already had some experience with the effect, since almost half of space travelers are affected by it to one extent or another. Um, Often the effect is mild, and it is often, though not always, um, a fact that it improves with time on orbit, so it wasn't really a concern for long-duration flights. Now, the other two effects were of concern for long-duration flights. One was really a concern over the really long term. Uh, And this was the effect of microgravity on the body's muscles and bones. Um, Scientists were beginning to discover um, just exactly how gravity has not only shaped, well, our shapes, but also how it continues to affect our shape literally every moment of every day. Our bodies have adapted over millennia to the demands of living in one gravity, one G. Our skeletons are designed to support our mass in an upright, standing or sitting position under the force of 1G. Our whole musculature is actually designed principally around this task because it's the one thing our muscles are always having to do um, unless we're lying down completely prone. No matter what else we're doing, from vigorous exercise to sitting and typing podcast scripts, 
our muscles and bones are having to hold us up. Well, take away gravity, and that task is suddenly no longer required on a continual basis. In fact, to our muscles and bones, zero-g feels a lot like we're lying down all the time. Now, scientists knew that when medical patients are confined to bed for long periods of time, they experience serious physiological effects, including loss of bone and muscle, that could literally become debilitating if it goes on long enough. And, in fact, they knew that the process began after even a few days of complete bed rest. So, scientists assumed that living in zero-g would result in effects that were at least similar. What they did not know was how serious the effects would be, how quickly they would appear, and how long they would last after returning to Earth. And, spoiler alert, um, what they would learn would actually be a little alarming. Um, to the extent that combating the skeletomuscular effects of long-term spaceflight is actually a bit of a preoccupation these days. Um, to the extent that astronauts devote at least two hours a day to exercise and activities that are meant to combat its effects when they're living on the space station. And many astronauts spend literally years after long-duration flight returning to full physical condition. But in 1965... Um, Though we didn't know that much, but no one knew how much of a concern it was going to be. And there was a reason not to open that door too fast, lest the effect be much worse than it even it turned out to be. So the medical community was quite happy to have Gemini 4 set at four days. Now the last physiological effect, and actually potentially the most serious in the short term, anyways, was the effect of fluid redistribution caused by lack of gravity. I mean, you see, normally we live with our heads and our upper bodies above our lower bodies. That's kind of why we label them that way. In space, of course, with no gravity, those definitions, upper and lower, make no sense. Without gravity to define them, there's no up. Uh, we've talked about how the brain adapts or doesn't to this situation, which is what leads to space sickness. And we've talked about how our muscles and bones adapt, and both of these reactions take a little bit of time. But the fluids in our body react immediately to the loss of gravity. Some of these effects are kind of minor, like the inability to shed tears, because the gravity, uh, because with no gravity, surface tension makes them adhere to your eyeballs. Or the curious effect that normal responses, like the one that alerts you to having a full bladder, no, really, no longer really function properly, because those sensing systems depend on downward pressure to trigger them. Some astronauts literally have to learn a different set of physiological cues to know when nature is calling, uh, sometimes pretty insistently. Uh, one astronaut I knew related that during his first spaceflight, after he'd been on orbit for a short time, he began to experience moderate but noticeable abdominal pain. And it was starting to get worse, so he asked a crewmate who'd flown before about it, and she said, um, have you peed yet? And he hadn't, so he did. Problem solved. Another effect of this fluid redistribution is obvious if you've seen pictures of astronauts in space, particularly when they haven't been in orbit for very long. And you may have noticed that their faces actually look quite different, uh, sort of puffy, in fact. Well, this is because the fluids have quite literally gone to their heads. Again, this can cause some moderate discomfort akin to sinus congestion on Earth, although in some more serious cases it can lead to serious headaches, distortion of vision, and sometimes, which even lasts um, long after the astronauts return to Earth, but that's reasonably rare. But of all of the effects of fluid redistribution, the most serious is in its effect 
on the body's circulatory and cardiovascular system. I mean, in case it wasn't obvious, the human body is an amazing and adaptable machine. On Earth, our circulatory system maintains enough blood in our system to ensure that, even working against the gravity's tendency to pull our blood into our legs and lower body, uh, our body can maintain an appropriate blood supply to our upper bodies and, critically, to our brains. When gravity is removed, uh, the body is suddenly confronted with the fact that it now has much more blood than it actually needs because the blood no longer tends to pool in our lower extremities. Um, so the body immediately begins reducing the volume of blood in the body, and it does so, this so effectively that even after a few days, blood volumes are significantly reduced, and after a long time on orbit, the body loses eh, almost a quarter of its blood volume. The other effect of the loss of fluid volume and the loss of gravity is that the heart finds that since it's not lifting blood from our lower extremities against the force of gravity, it doesn't need to pump nearly as hard. Now, this effect accelerates, obviously, as the blood volume decreases, and the net effect is that the heart muscle actually starts to atrophy, and in a startlingly short period of time. Uh, in fact, experience with extremely sedentary subjects, like bedridden patients, had shown the effect that could be seen even in a few days. Now, none of this was of much a concern for an astronaut's health while they were on orbit, but they were a source of serious concern for what would happen when astronauts returned to Earth after an extended stay on orbit. There was a genuine concern that the combination of loss of blood volume combined with cardiac muscle atrophy might mean that returning astronauts would, in the best case, be unable to stand without fainting for loss of blood reaching their brains, and in a worse case, the effect might be so severe as to be lethal. After a long exposure to weightlessness, the astronaut's cardiovascular system might literally not be able to support them when gravity returned. And this was thought to be unlikely, probably extremely unlikely, but it actually couldn't be ruled out entirely. So NASA doctors were just as happy not to push the envelope too far on Gemini 4. And now, after all, they knew that a Soviet cosmonaut had survived four days in space. Now, they did not know much more than that, but they did know that that duration of spaceflight was survivable. And one gets the sense that, on balance, they were just as happy not to push their luck beyond that point, at least not until they had a little bit more data. All of which is to say that while Gemini 4 would be NASA's longest flight, it was not really pushing NASA's experience into the realm of long-duration flight. So that left EVA, and it's fair to say that Ed White's EVA, uh, the first one ever by a NASA astronaut, and only the second one in history, has become really the event for which Gemini 4, and to some extent the whole Gemini program, is remembered. The images of him hovering outside the Gemini capsule with the Earth in the background have literally become iconic to the extent that when you say spacewalk to many people, certainly to people of my generation, they almost certainly see something that looks like the picture of Ed White in 1965. But, in fact, EVA ended up on Gemini 4 almost as an afterthought. Well, it was an afterthought for NASA management. It was not by any means an afterthought for the crew. Almost as soon as Jim McDivitt and Ed White were named as the crew of Gemini 4 in July of 1964, they and their backup crew of Frank Borman and Jim Lovell began to think seriously about and advocate seriously for doing an EVA on their flight. From the beginning, all of the crew members advocated 
for at least ensuring that the new spacesuit, suit known as the G4C, would be ready for the flight, which meant that EVA could be added to the flight even late in the flow. Uh, and this ended, uh, in the end, turned out to be a really wise decision. Uh, reluctance to officially schedule an EVA, though, for Gemini 4, stemmed, I think, essentially from concerns that you know, the problem really hadn't been studied thoroughly enough. And you see, one of the features of the mission operations culture that was emerging at NASA was that no idea was really ready for flight until both the crew and the flight control team had a chance to explore it fully um, through training and simulation, which is really just another way of saying that everyone involved needed to become intimately familiar with all of the things that could go horribly wrong so that the technology, as well as the rules and procedures for using it, could be developed and modified to give the greatest possible chance of keeping the crew safe and the mission successful, even if things did not go exactly according to plan. Now, even into the fall of 1964, EVA techniques and equipment were just not there, as far as both flight controllers and crew operations engineers were concerned. Um, by that time, fall of 1964, there had really only been one test of EVA, which consisted of putting the spacecraft with crew on board in a high-altitude test chamber, taking the chamber up to a simulated altitude of 40,000 feet, and opening the hatches. And then the hatches were closed, and the chamber was repressurized. The test was meant to test that the spacesuits uh, would protect the crew from at least a partial vacuum, and that the capsule systems would not be damaged by exposure to low pressures. But even this test failed to inspire great confidence. I mean, the new spacesuits worked fine. But once the hatch was opened, the crew had actually not been able to close it again. And that was in 1G. And as the crew would find out, uh, this should have been a sign, because if there's one thing that has been learned about working in microgravity, anything that's a physical struggle in 1G is going to be much, much harder in 0G especially when you're wearing a spacesuit. So while the Gemini 3 crew focused on their spacecraft checkout flight, the Gemini 4 crew started spending much more time on EVA training. The training was helping build confidence, but there was still a feeling that EVA was eh, not quite ready for prime time. And lacking any strong reason to put it on the flight, it was probably going to be best to defer it until a later flight, you know, to build some more confidence that the potential issues were well understood. Well, then the Soviets provided a strong reason for putting it on the flight. On the 18th of March, just prior to the launch of Gemini 3, Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov performed the very first EVA as part of the Voshkod 2 mission. Once again, NASA had been beat, beaten to the post to claim a first in space. And by this time, everyone at NASA was frankly getting pretty sick of it. As Gene Kranz wrote in his autobiography, quote, the United States had yet to set a manned spaceflight record. Every member in flight control was aware of our opportunity in the Gemini program to set records for rendezvous, docking, duration, and extravehicular operations. We were confident that our turn was coming. Unquote. So, in a move that had never happened before, and from what I can tell has never really happened since, EVA was put on the fast track. Gene Kranz was quietly instructed by Chris Kraft to work with the engineers and the crew to get it done, but to tell absolutely no one about it. Because in case the equipment and procedures could not be pulled together in time, there was no way that NASA was going to admit that they had tried to match the Soviets and failed. 
So there followed a period of what even Gene Kranz remembers as being impressive for the amount of innovative engineering that got done in a very short period of time. Quote, the EVA task force was the most powerfully creative effort I had witnessed to date in the space program. Astronauts, technicians, doctors, and engineers in a huddle, one minute discussing wrapping the 25-foot umbilical in a figure-eight layout in its bag, and another minute reviewing movies of Leonov's spacewalk, unquote. Once again, um, this quick look into the uh, multidisciplinary team that Kranz describes uh, as working on EVA points to the variety of unknowns that NASA was actually confronting. I mean, the first of these was just mechanical. Uh, at its most basic, how were the crew going to be protected against the vacuum of space? And not only the spacewalking crew member, because the Gemini spacecraft had no airlock, um, which I guess explains a little explanation. These days, for instance, on board the International Space Station, when a crew member goes for a walk outside the space station, they first move into a small chamber that has access both to the inside of the station and to the hatch to the outside. This is the airlock. To exit the station, an EVA crew member enters the airlock, closes the inner door and seals it, and then opens the vents to evacuate the airlock, and then he opens the door to the outside. Now, the main volume of the space station is therefore never exposed to vacuum just a small amount of volume in the airlock. To return inside, of course, the process is simply reversed. The EVA crew member comes into the airlock. The outer door is sealed. Uh, the vents into the station are opened, and when pressure is equalized, the hatch is opened and she re-enters the station. Well, uh, Gemini, of course, had none of that. There was one hatch on the spacecraft. It was above the astronauts' heads, and when they were speeded in the cockpit. So in order for an astronaut to get outside, the entire Gemini capsule would need to be vented to space, then the EVA crewman would effectively stand on his seat, open the hatch, and float out through it. Um, so both crew would then effectively be exposed to the outside while EVA was going on, and since the tether and umbilical to the walking crewman uh, were connected to the inside of the capsule, there was no way to close the hatch and repressurize the capsule until he was safely back inside. So both astronauts were going to require a spacesuit that would allow them to survive in a complete vacuum. Now, strange as it may seem, this was actually kind of a new requirement. The early Mercury spacesuits had been intended to protect the crew against a mishap that caused the spacecraft to lose pressure during ascent or re-entry, maybe even pretty high in the atmosphere but the suits were not actually designed to allow the crew to work in the full vacuum of space. With the need for EVA in mind, a new spacesuit had been developed for Gemini, but this was the first time it would be put to the test of being the only thing between an astronaut and the void. In addition to the problem of ensuring the astronauts could survive exposure to space, there was also the question of what they were going to do with their EVA time. And we will talk about a lot more about EVA in a future episode, because it has turned out to be one of those things that has just ended up being a lot harder than anybody knew it would be. Uh, for Gemini 4, though, the only objective was really to show that an astronaut could leave the spacecraft, maneuver in some way, and return safely. And this really only required two systems. One was the safety system, to ensure the astronaut could always return to the capsule. And this was really just a line that connected the EVA crew member's suit uh, and then connected back to the capsule. It was not particularly complicated, but again, um, coming up with a tether that could be connected, extracted, and not interfere with the astronaut's motion in zero-g, and then be reeled in, disconnected, and stowed 
all in the very small volume available within the Gemini capsule, was actually not a trivial engineering task, especially since there was effectively no way to test its mechanical properties in zero-g. You know, and just to emphasize the point, if you look at those famous photos of Ed White's spacewalk on Gemini 4, one of the most prominent features in the photos is, in fact, the tether. In some pictures, it occupies more of the frame than Ed White does. Now, the other major piece of engineering that was being developed in a hurry for the EVA on Gemini 4 was dubbed the Handheld Maneuvering Unit, HHMU, uh, but everybody just called it the Zip Gun. This was a handheld unit which featured small nozzles on a crossbar that were connected to two small compressed air bottles. And the idea was that by pointing the zip gun and pulling, pulling the trigger to release small puffs of gas, the astronaut would be able to translate and rotate in space once they left the spacecraft. Now, aside from engineering all new equipment and procedures to go along with them, the other major part of the EVA preparation effort was, again, biomedical. As with the effects of long-duration spaceflight, um, the effects of free flight in space on the human body, specifically on the human brain, um, were at this time completely untested. And unlike the case of long-duration exposure, where bed rest patients provided at least some earthbound analogy, there was really no way to simulate the effects of free flight EVA on the ground. Even working in a neutral buoyancy tank or swimming pool only provided eh, a partial substitute, because in such a tank, even though the astronaut's weight is supported by the water, their senses still feel the pull of gravity, and so their brains are still able to see the world in terms of up and down, even with their eyes closed. Similarly, even on an air-bearing, frictionless floor, um, it, you know, the floor can teach astronauts about the effect of working in a completely frictionless environment, but really only in two dimensions. So the effect of removing all gravitational cues to direction and then potentially removing all visual cues in terms not only of position but motion as well was utterly unexplored territory for everybody involved. And there was a real concern that an EVA crew member might induce emotion, like a rotation, and then become so disoriented that they wouldn't be able to recover. So procedures and processes had to be developed to prevent that from happening, if possible, and to recover from the problem if it did. And all of that new equipment and those new procedures uh, had to be approved, which happened finally just a week before launch. And literally, until it was approved, no one on the flight control team beyond Gene Kranz knew anything about the plan or the equipment or its characteristics or its limitations. In fact, the remote site teams were literally handed an envelope at their final briefing before going out to the sites. The envelope was essentially labeled to be opened upon instructions from NASA management, and it contained the EVA flight planning and equipment specification documents. As Gene Kranz said, quote, this brief note was a hell of a way for flight controllers to learn of America's first EVA, unquote. Nevertheless, as we'll talk about next time, the EVA activities went on to become the iconic image, as I said, of Gemini 4 and, to some extent, of the whole Gemini program. But, you know, that's going to be a story for next time, because that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.